in my Sunday school class upstairs, we've been going through Rob's ordination paper. This started a few weeks ago. And the topic last week out of his paper was who is God? And one of the things talks about God as Father. Um, Rob writes it this way. The creator God who made everything we see and everything we cannot see has entered a special relationship with the men and women he made. He does not only relate to us as the transcendent God who is higher and greater than our loftiest imaginations, who measures the water in the hollow of his hand, who consults with no one in establishing his eternal counsel, who knows all the stars by name. He relates to us as the imminent God, the God who is with us and who calls us to be his sons and daughters. Though he runs the affairs of the universe, he stoops to correct and train to love and hold his frail children. I uh, don't coordinate my Sunday school classes with anybody, but when I have God the Father in my Sunday school class that I'm learning, and then I have it in church, the same message last week, and then I get a call this week and says, hey, Mike, can you do scripture about God being Father? When I get it like that many times, I start to pay attention. So I thought I would bring that up to you guys. We're going to be reading out of Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. I should have said that first so you could get there if you wanted to follow along. But this is how God tells us the same thing Rob was trying to get across in his paper. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by, by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Well, I don't think it's probably any surprise to you that you need to turn back to Matthew chapter 6 in your Bibles. We're still, yes, in Matthew chapter 6. And, and honestly, we're, we're still addressing these four words because of the magnitude of what it means to call God our Father. And so these four words are at the beginning of the Lord's model prayer. And he tells us that we're to address God as our Father in heaven. We're going to be talking about that again this morning. Last week, we talked about the fact that that we have a father and that that's a relationship word. We call the God of the universe, the one we just heard about in Isaiah chapter 43, this God of the universe whose name is so holy that the Jews did not even dare to speak it. We call this God by the closest, most intimate name. We call him our father. We identify with him because he has identified himself with us. It's a crazy thought, but it's true. And this is paramount in every conceivable way. But when it comes to changing from what we are to what we know we should become, this is really a foundational fact. Real change starts when God becomes our Father. And we talked last week as well about the fact that this relationship with our Father is particularly characterized by love. That's the nature of what it means to be a father. God didn't love us, though, because of something good in us. This is really important. If that were true, then we might guess that if we messed up or did really badly, that God might stop loving us. But our Father doesn't love us because we're good. He loves us because He is good. If God didn't then love us for anything in us, then nothing in us can deter him from loving us. And we reveled in that truth last week. What an amazing reality. If, there's, if God didn't love me because of something about me, but because of something about him, then nothing that I do can stop him from pouring out his love on me. 
If God didn't make us sons and daughters because we looked like good additions to the family, then nothing can stop him from calling himself our father. Real change, we know then, is possible because we're inescapably loved by the one who matters most. We are inescapably loved by the one who matters most. And last week we started talking about this great truth that not only do we have a father, a father who loves us, but we have a father who loves us who is in heaven. He is our God in heaven. And that means that he's different, catch this, from any other father that you have ever known. Yes, he's different than any other father that you've ever known. If you've had a good father, God is so much more. He's better than your best memories, than your brightest imaginations. And if you've had a bad father, God is so much different. He hates hateful ways, and he loves faithfulness. He never takes advantage of his children. He never compromises their well-being in order to further his own purposes. God never uses his children or abuses his children, or laughs at them when they're down. God is so good to you that he makes every other father look evil by comparison. And we see that in Matthew chapter 7, 11, a little later on in Jesus' same sermon, in which he says, if you then, being evil, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So you feel the contrast. If Jesus is truly calling every father, no matter good or bad, in comparison to the greatness and goodness of our God, our Father in heaven, he's calling every one of us evil, then that tells us about the stunning, spectacular, beyond imagination nature of this loving relationship that we have with God our Father. God our Father who loves us and who is in heaven And it's here that partway through this that we're picking up this morning with this great reality that our Father who loves us is in heaven. And so let's pray as we begin. Our Father in heaven, God of the universe, King of everything that we see and everything that we cannot see, we come to you this morning not because we have anything to offer, not because there's something good in us by which we commend ourselves to your kindness and mercy and grace. We come to you simply because, well, we come because you first loved us. We come because you've lavished your grace upon us and we come as a result with nothing in our hands and claiming you as our Father because you first claimed us as your children. What a great reality. We're asking One thing this morning, Father, we're asking that you, our Father in heaven, would be exalted and lifted up, that somehow by the things that we share together in the Word of God and by the Spirit of God who's working in us, you would do something new in our hearts to reveal to us more of what it means to be the children of God, those who call upon our Father without fear. We're asking that. We're believing you for that. We're trusting that this, because it is your heart, is your desire to do here this morning. We pray it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So this morning, we are picking up with this idea of our Father in heaven. And I want to ask you a question. If you were to summarize all of the Sermon on the Mount in a single word, what word would you choose? That's a tall order, right? I mean, Jesus spends three chapters addressing the Sermon on the Mount, and many different topics are touched on throughout the sermon. But there is a word that can be used to describe what Jesus is here teaching. And and I'm not making it up. It's actually at the end of the sermon. Now, there are actually two things that are kind of summation statements at the very end of the sermon. In chapter 7, at the end you'll find that the first is that there's a summary that Jesus gives about what people should do as a result of hearing this sermon. And what they should do is that they should actually act on what Jesus has said. That's what Jesus says is the sum of all that he's teaching. So of all the things that he's teaching, he's saying, you now need to go and do these things. Don't be just hearers who hear with the ear, but hearers who act 
and do what I have just said to do. And he compares that to building a house on the rock and building a house on the sand. And you remember the story of how that goes. But there's another word that's here at the end, a single word by which this whole sermon can be characterized. I want you to hear what it says in verse 28 of chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 28. It says that when Jesus finished these sayings, so these sayings is everything that's come before. So everything that's come before, Jesus has finished these sayings, the whole Sermon on the Mount. It says the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Now listen, they were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. One who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, when we think of our Father in heaven, what Jesus is actually doing is not only bringing us to understand that our Father in heaven is different than every earthly father, that he's infinitely greater than the good fathers, and that he's utterly different than the bad fathers, he's also taking us to understand that this Father in heaven is the Father who is the King. That this is the Father who is in authority. Now, the word here for authority is not the word that's used for the explosive power of Almighty God. It's the word for the right that God has to do whatever he pleases. It has to do with his sovereignty. God doesn't need anyone's permission for anything that he does. So Jesus, it says, is here speaking with authority, not as one of the scribes, because unlike the scribes, Jesus isn't teaching about somebody else. He is teaching, when he teaches about God, about himself. So his words carry weight, authority, that no one else's words can carry. And the crowds could feel that reality as they listened to Jesus teach. And they summarized it as speaking with authority. You know, it's good to know Christ as our brother and as our friend, but we really can't come to God our Father without acknowledging his authority. Now, we love the idea of authority when we think about the fact that God sits in the heavens and he laughs at our enemies. We love his authority when we recall that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. We love his authority when we remember that he will, yes, judge the earth, that he will right all the wrongs, and that he'll punish evil. But we, we struggle with his authority when it comes to him telling us what to do. But that's what a father does. He is all of those things. He does sit in the heavens and laugh at our enemies. He does stand up for us in every place where we're indefensible except for by his power. Yes, he does all those things because he's a good father, but he also, because he's our father, tells us what we must do. Because our father in heaven has the right to tell us what to do and how to do it, we so know him as Father. He has the right. Yes, he has the right to bring us into circumstances that we don't understand. He has the right to bring us into relationships that are painful. But you must understand that God's right to do anything is also the fact that he only does what is right. Every action of God's authority is carried out within the context of his fatherly love. So the things that are most difficult in your life, by which God has brought you into a circumstance that you really don't want to be in, that did not escape or did not somehow bypass his fatherly love. It's like, okay, we can circumvent his love on this one, and in this one, he's just doing what's best for, for himself with no regard to his child. No, no. Nothing in life that you experience, nothing that you experience if you are the child of God ever bypasses his love. It, this difficult thing comes through, it comes through his love for you. Yes, he has the right to do anything he pleases, but everything he pleases to do is right. Now, I wonder if some of you might be saying under your breath, 
It's all well and good to call God our Father and to talk about Him as a different kind of Father, a better kind of Father than any earthly father could ever be. But if He is so good and kind, why hasn't He protected me from this sickness or this harmful relationship or this dark trial? And I want to remind you again that we're talking about God our Father. And by implication, again, that means that we are his children. So let me ask you, in human families, do children always understand what their parents are doing? Do do children always get it when parents make decisions that are actually best for the child? I remember growing up, I, I had gotten to the third grade in Penryn Elementary School, the little elementary school in my teeny tiny town, hardly fit to be called a town, but to the town of Penryn, California. I'd gotten to third grade and I was doing fine in school, but my parents were seeing trends that were taking place in the school that they did not like and they did not feel was appropriate or best for their little tyke who was attending there. And they started talking about something that at that point was kind of revolutionary. They started talking about putting me into a Christian school. Now, again, you need to understand that when I was going through school, talking about Christian school was kind of like talking about homeschool about 30 years ago. So uh, it, was, it was new. It was different. My grandparents were not excited about it. It was going to be expensive, and it was farther away from home. And I had about, as it turns out at the end, I had about an hour bus ride each way to, uh, to get there and to get home again. It was a big commitment. And as for me, I just didn't want to go. I didn't want to change. I didn't want to have to do something different. I didn't want to have to try to catch up to the academic standards at this new school, which was very devoted to everything academic. And so I just didn't want to do it. And my parents, though, the interesting thing is uh, they worked with me through the process, but there was never any doubt that I was going to make the change. There was never any doubt that I was going to do this because they have authority to tell me what to do because what they desire for me is my best. So they didn't equivocate. They didn't back down. They didn't say through my tears as my father's trying to teach me the multiplication tables before I got to school since they'd already learned it at Forest Lake Christian School and I had not learned it at Penryn Elementary. And so uh, they didn't equivocate. They didn't back down. They didn't say, oh, you know, this is really hard for our son. I think we're just going to we're just going to let him go back to Penman because they have authority and because they invest all of their authority for my best, even when I don't understand, even when I don't get it. And that's one picture of the way that God is working with us. He invests all of his authority on your behalf, but he does not require, catch this, he does not require that you, his child, actually understand what he's doing. He doesn't ask you to understand everything. He asks you to trust him. That's what he asks. He asks that you trust that he, your heavenly father, who has authority to tell you what to do, is doing what he does for your best. We've talked about the fact that Jesus says, if we then are evil, give good gifts. And the comparison is that that our Father gives good gifts every time and good gifts of a magnitude that's hard for us to even imagine. If my parents were so committed to me as to make the expensive, difficult, socially challenging decision to send me to Forest Lake Christian School and pull me out of the local public school, then... How much more? How much more is my Father in Heaven going to work on my behalf to do good things for me when I don't understand? And yes, even when it hurts. And yes, even when I just don't want to do it. God is not giving you a stone in the trial that you're currently experiencing. He's not giving you a snake when you ask him for a fish. 
even though the bite of this trial feels venomous in your soul. Your Father is giving you what is best, though you may not as of yet see what he's doing. You might be thinking about something that you've been praying about for a long time, something good, but something that God has not given to you yet. I have one in mind. I personally have one in mind. I'm thinking about one of these, and I'm telling you that the desire that I've prayed about for a long time is a good thing. It's something good. It would be beneficial from everything that I can see. But God has said no to this point. He has not given it to me. And I'm realizing something. I'm realizing that my Father in heaven, think about this, is somehow, in some way that I do not understand, he's somehow being good to me by not giving me the good thing that I'm asking for. Because he's my Father in heaven I'm realizing that at least for right now, that good thing that I desire, and it really is a good thing, that this good thing for me would not be a fish or a loaf of bread or an egg, according to Luke, but for me it would be a serpent or a stone or a scorpion. You know how I know that? It's simple. My good father hasn't given it to me yet. If it would be a loaf of bread for me, he would give it to me. Because he's my good father. But something about it that I don't see, that I don't understand, is not good for me yet. And so the father is saying no. And he's saying no because he has authority to do whatever he pleases. And everything that he pleases to do is right. I can't tell you the times, number of times that I've said to God over this particular issue, I don't understand. And I still don't. I don't think, though, that it's troubling my Father in heaven for me to tell him again that I don't know. He knows that I don't know. He knows that I don't get it. So now I'm trying to do something else. I'm trying to add, not only I don't understand, but thank you. Thank you, Father. Because purposely practicing gratitude in this hard thing is a way for me to say, I still don't understand, Father, but I trust you. Our Father is in heaven. He has all authority. But what a Father! What a King! What authority! He invests all that authority to move you and me to exactly the place that is best for us, though we may not yet see how that is true. Someday in this life or in the next, we'll wake up and realize that God has guided us to the very best possible place, though in the process, we didn't know how it would work. And this is the principle. The principle is that real change grows out of our understanding of God's authority to tell us what to do and our understanding that what God commands us to do, what he tells us to do, is best. Real change only can come in that place where you actually agree that God has the right to tell you what to do and that by faith, trusting him, you receive that thing and act upon it. That was Jesus' own summary of the Sermon on the Mount, right? At the end, he said, don't just hear these words, but do them. That's saying, I have the authority to tell you what to do. And by doing them, you are establishing your life on something that cannot be moved. And it was the crowd's response. They understood what Jesus was saying in regard to his authority, that he spoke as one of those who has authority and not as one of their scribes. He has the right to tell us what to do. But because he's our Father who loves us, everything he tells us to do, comes from a heart that is perfectly in tune with your deepest need. There is nothing in my experience, there's nothing in your experience that circumvents this great reality. Our Father is in heaven. But I've skipped one of these four words until just now. And it's actually the word, our it's a simple little word, but it makes a great deal of difference. Think about this. 
You are not an only child. When God became your father, when you came into a relationship with him as a child through the atoning death of your older brother, the Lord Jesus, you weren't the only one. The father is bringing many sons to glory through Jesus, according to Hebrews chapter 2. Here's the amazing thing. You have all the attention of your father as if you were the only one. But you have all the fellowship of your father through your brothers and sisters. Let me, let me show you just how that works. You have all the attention of your father. God sees you in secret. God knows everything about you. Not one thing escapes his notice. Here, here Matthew 6, 8, one more time. Your father, he says, knows what you need before you ask him. You have all the attention of your father. Could any father be more attentive than to know the needs of his children before they ask for what they need? No, that's the most astonishing reality there could be, that my father in heaven, who invests all of his authority on my behalf, that this father knows my needs before I ask him and still tells me then, my child, come and ask. Come and ask me for what I already know you need. Now, think about it. You, you dads, if someone came up and said, say, I've, I've got some clothes that I think might fit your daughter, do you think a size blank would work? I'm guessing you'd be stumped on, on two fronts. I, I think you'd be stumped, first of all, on whether or not your daughter had any needs. I would have been. I don't know. Ask her mom. She's got the kind. I don't know. Uh, but there's a second side. I think even if you knew that your daughter had needs and you cleared that hurdle, I'm guessing you would have no idea what size she wears. Um, I, I don't know. She's kind of on the small side. Honey? That's, that's where we'd be. But not your father in heaven. Your father in heaven is devoted to you in the smallest detail. He knows your needs before you ask as if you were the only one on whom all of his attention descended. He focuses all, your, all his attention on you because he's God, he can. And yet you are not an only child. He, he focuses his attention on you as if you were. But you actually get the second benefit because he is our father in heaven. You have all of his fellowship with brothers and sisters, with the people right around you, right here this morning. This is what John says in 1 John chapter 4 and verses 10 and 11. In this, John writes, is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So you're catching what John is saying. John is saying we understand what love is because of the way God has acted through Jesus. Okay, that's what we're saying, essentially, uh, leaving out some very important words. But beloved, he says, if God so loved us, now here's the, the statement of what we should do. If God so loved us, then we also ought to love one another. Now, John does something really strange here, and I want you to hear what he does. In the middle of saying, God loved us, we see his love for us through Jesus, now you who have been so loved by God, go love your brother and sister, makes this statement. No one, he says, has ever seen God. John, what in the world? Why are we talking about the fact that God is an invisible God in the middle of a discussion about God loving us through Jesus and us loving one another because God loves us? What? That's what he says, though. He says, breaking into the train of thought, no one has ever seen God. But listen to what he continues to say. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Get this. What God is saying through the Apostle John is this. We actually do see God, the invisible God, and the way we see him is through each other. That we actually see the love of God through the love of our brothers and sisters who show us with hands and feet of flesh what the love of God looks like. So that the invisible God has given us tangible, visible evidences of his love and all we have to do is look right and left, right here, to see tangible, visible evidences of the love of God for us. And that's a comfort and it's a challenge. 
how are we wrapping our arms around our siblings? How, how are we showing them what God really looks like? That's our job. That's our responsibility. Having been so loved by God who gave his only son as a propitiation for our sins, we now have the privilege, the joy, and yes, the duty of loving one another for Jesus' sake. So that the person who sits on your right today or on your left today or who is up in the balcony today, wherever you are, that that person is actually a living, breathing, tangible evidence of what the invisible God looks like. What an amazing reality that God has given us actual people through whom we can see the Father. Because he is not just my father. He's not just your father. He is our father in heaven. This is the principle that we take away from that. The principle is that real change is designed to take place in community with others who can help you see God and yourself better. Real change is designed to take place in community with other people. And here we are practicing that very thing. This is the format, this is one of the formats, in which the body of the Lord Jesus comes together and is itself the furnace, the cauldron, the catalyst for change that's needed in my life and in your life. This is the place that God has designed to do it. This is the community among whom we learn to represent, to understand, and to grow together in the love of God, our Father. So we, we have a relationship of love with God in heaven who adopts us into his family. I don't think there's any more astonishing way that this prayer could begin than with these four words, our Father in heaven. Think about it. The God who knows everything, the God who knows everything invites you to call him Father. Now, our goal as we think about the Lord's model prayer is not just to learn truths about what Jesus is teaching, but the implications of those truths, because we want to know not only the facts, but how God uses those facts to change us. In fact, that's really what faith's essential concern is. Faith's essential concern is not primarily just knowing about God. It's wrapped up in knowing God and understanding him in a way that a child knows and understands his father. The child, especially the young child, can't give a list of all his father's vital statistics. He can't tell his blood pressure and his weight or the information that was printed on his birth certificate. He can't tell you how fast his dad could run the mile when he was in high school. He can't tell how many push-ups he could do when he was in his prime. He might not even be able to remember his father's birthday. And he might have to scratch his head to think about what his father's middle name is. Those are good things for him to know about his father. Don't misunderstand. Those are good things to know about his father. And, and in one way or another, they tell the story of who his father actually is. But the child's primary concern is one thing. He is my father. He is my father. And he revels in the fact that he is my father, that his father will take care of him no matter what, that his dad will deal with all of his problems, that his dad's stronger than the things that scare him at night. He's glad that when he needs help, he can count on dad. He delights in the relationship. This is my dad. I am his son. So we've been looking at tools that help us to take these great truths of the Lord's Prayer and put them into practice in our lives. And, and we've already looked at four of these tools that we'll remind you of here. Uh, because God knows everything, the context into which the Lord's Prayer is set, because God knows everything, we don't have to hide, we don't have to perform, we don't have to shout, we don't have to worry. And this morning I want to take you to one more tool this built on the great truth that we've been talking about. Because God is our Father, we don't have to look elsewhere for acceptance. There are several more tools that in the days to come I would like to help us to think about. But this morning, this is enough. God is our Father, and because He is 
we don't have to look elsewhere for acceptance. In John chapter 16, verses 26 to 28, John writes, actually with Jesus' voice behind it, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Now listen, for the Father himself loves you. Let that just sink into your soul for a moment. Jesus says again, I'll read it, in that day you will ask, speaking to his disciples, in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. John tells us that we have been heard by our Father. He tells us in John 16, 27 that we're loved by our Father. He tells us in John 17 and 10, you belong to your Father. In John 17, 11, he says you're kept by your Father. You couldn't be more accepted by your Father in heaven than you are. You are accepted in every way, and you're accepted with him knowing everything about you. Not only all the things that you've already done, not only the things that you're presently doing, but all the things that you have yet to do. He knows all those things and he accepts you and receives you. And John says here in John chapter 16 that he doesn't just receive you with a bit of the nose pinching and disdain of something stinky being brought into his courtroom. He accepts you as his child and he himself loves you. You couldn't be more accepted than you are by your Father in heaven. Now, because we're accepted by our Father, a couple of key things come out of that. And this is the first. Because we're accepted by our Father in heaven, we aren't confused about who we are. We aren't confused about who we are. We are the children of God. We are God's own sons and daughters. Yes, we are those whom Jesus has bought by his blood, presented to the Father, and who now stand righteous before God. That's who we are. But we live in a time of a great deal of confusion about who we are. We, we live in a time where identity is a matter of questions of our minds and whether or not we think we are one thing or another. And Sadly, this confusion is not just limited to people who don't know God. This is a confusion that is creeping into the church as well. There's a reason for such mental muddiness. Here it is. When we are after the acceptance of anyone other than God, we can be sure that we'll be confused about who we are. When we are after the acceptance of anyone other than God we can be sure that we'll be confused about who we actually are. We won't know who we are because we're measuring ourselves by what other people think we should be. Right? Or, or we won't know who we are because we are confused about who we think we should be. I can get confused in my own head. I don't even need other people to tell me confusing things that I should be. That is true that our culture is telling us who we should and should not be, and that's been the case, by the way, much longer than just our day. But it comes out in special forms in our day. But I'm confused in my own head. So if I'm depending on my own head to tell me who I am, I'm in trouble. If I'm depending on the culture to tell me who I am, I'm in trouble. But, but also we get confused because our old father, the devil, tells us who we are. And he wants to tell us anything other than this great reality that we've been here focusing on, that God is our Father who loves us, and because he loves us, is accepting us completely and totally in every way. When you're confused about who you are, don't look inside yourself for the answer. Your own thoughts will mingle with the thoughts and expectations of other people and with the voice of the enemy of your soul who whispers lies to confuse you. Confusion does result from listening to your own thoughts because you're clouded by the past in which you did not do well representing your father. You just have to look backwards a little way and say, wow, who really am I? I didn't do a good job of representing God, my father in heaven. 
and I start thinking that my past determines my identity. You, you might have met older people who are still living in the glory days of their um, achievements in the war or their um, accomplishments on the field of sports, uh, and they're still living there, but that's not who they really are. It's who they were, and it had a portion of truth about something that relates to what they currently are, but it doesn't define them. Those things are a part of them, but not the sum total of their identity. Uh, you might know people who are identified by something terrible that they once did, and they just can't shake off the guilt and the shame. But they don't need to be defined by that. We're identified by how our Father knows us, and he knows us as children accepted in his love. Sometimes our own thoughts aren't just clouded by the past, but they're obscured by our fickle desires, the things that are inside of us that have not yet been brought fully under the control of the Holy Spirit. But our desires are as fickle as weathercocks in a changing wind. If we identify on the basis of our present desires, we could be literally a profligate partier one moment and a workaholic the next. Because our desires are all over the boards. Just try going to the grocery store hungry. Right? All of a sudden, broccoli looks attractive. And, and that's the way that it is. Our desires are all over the boards. All of a sudden, you're identifying as a broccoli aficionado. And you don't even like broccoli, but when you're hungry enough, even that green tree looks nice to eat. So, so our desires are all over the boards. Our past doesn't define us because of the things that we have done, whether bad or good. And, and it's not really our desires that define us because our desires are all over the boards. Uh, in our culture, we might be boys one minute and girls the next. Our, our, our desires are unstable. But God, get this, is at work by his Holy Spirit to change our desires, but never to trust them. Hear me on that. God the Holy Spirit is at work in your life to alter, to change your desires into that which reflects his own character and glory. But he is not at work in your life to give you the ability then to trust those desires. No, no. We don't trust our desires. We trust God, our Father in heaven, who loves us unconditionally from his lofty position of authority in heaven. We trust the God who has the authority to say, this is my son and I love him when the enemy accuses us. But confusion also does come from listening to the expectations of others. Uh, this is what you always used to do, they might tell you. And, and Peter talks about that in 1 Peter chapter 4, 3 through 4. He says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised. This is the outside world. They're surprised when you do not join with them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So, so you're getting it. The outside world is confused about your identity, and they want to confuse you. They say, wait a minute, in the past you were this kind of, you were a partier, dude. What happened to you? You fell off the map. How, how's this going down? Where, where, what kind of a stick in the mud are you anyway? And he says, they malign you. They might even say, the outside world, uh, this is what you need to do in order to be okay. Or if, when you, what you really feel, they'll tell you, is who you really are. So if you listen to just the voices around you, you'll be a chameleon, changing your behavior based on who you're around. What's acceptable in one crowd, after all, is not acceptable in another. So in trying to become authentic, and that's a big word for our culture right now, in trying to be authentic you will become disingenuous, a fraud, a fake. Because you're just being whatever people around you tell you you should be. That that's your identity. That that's who you actually are. You'll never be really real because you're always matching your pitch to the song of the culture or to the song of your peers. We are most authentic when we're most aligned with truth. 
We're most authentic when we're most aligned with truth. We're inauthentic in every regard in which we consider ourselves or our voices or the voices of the people around us to be the measure against which reality must be judged. Reality is not judged by me. I am judged by reality. And the reality is that God is our Father. Confusion also comes from that third source. It comes from our own minds, our own confusion about who we are, or maybe our desires, which are fickle and changing all the time. It comes from what the world says we should be. This is who you should be to be able to fit in here. This is what you used to be. Why aren't you that anymore? But it also does come from our enemy, and his voice is saying this. You belong to me. You always belong to me. You'll never shake off the shackles of your old life and your present desires. Don't you feel that lust rising up inside of you? That's the real you. That's what he says to you. That's the real you. Don't deny it. Just give in. You'll never be anything more than that. You'll never be anything other than that. That's the real identity you have. You've tried to live better, he says, before, and it never worked. He says, this, this God, your father business, that works for some people, but not for you. And he says this, God doesn't actually really want you. He, he doesn't really love you. When we start listening to other voices, whether the voices in our heads or the voices of the culture or the voices of the enemy, we are bound to be confused because we do not experience the clarity of the simple truth that we are accepted by God. When our priority is acceptance by anyone other than God, when we're confused about who we really are, we can be sure that there's something that we have not yet believed about the relationship that we have with our Father. This morning we're highlighting this one, that we are accepted by our Father. There's something about that that we have not yet believed. We must believe that it's really true that this Father who is in heaven is inviting us to call him Father and accepting and receiving us on the basis of the blood of his Son, the Lord Jesus. Now, we do live in a society that's made attractions and appetites central, as though those things that attract you or those things that are, look like they will meet your appetite are the real you seeping up out of the depths of your true inner being. That's what the culture tells us, that those attractions, those appetites are really the real thing. And they're coming up from inside of you, seeping out past the restrictive social constructs that were designed to throttle you and keep you from expressing who you really are. They'll tell you that not going with your attractions or your appetites is inauthentic, that it's not real, that it's actually just you reflecting outside parameters that have been put around you. But that's not true. It's not true true that those are the real you if God is your father. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. He says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now listen. And he says, And such were, catch the past tense, and such were some of you. And the implication is, but you aren't anymore. Do you know what that tells us? Change is possible. He says, continuing, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That was you. But it isn't anymore. The devil, the culture, and even your own mind is saying, you can't really change, especially in this day, if you have these attractions that are inappropriate or wrong or that God doesn't approve of. That's really you, and this God thing is kind of just constricting you. No, 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 you, listen, you are the child of your Father in heaven. Those things were you when you had a different father. But they are not you 
anymore. I don't know how to say that more clearly. But I think it's very important that we understand, that I understand, that we together hold one another up in this understanding that the real you is the person that you are accepted in the heavenly places by the Lord Jesus and in relationship to God our Father. That is who we were in the past. Change, though, is possible. What once attracted you does not have to be the center of your focus anymore. You now have a father who loves you and who is committed to you. As author Tim Chester puts it, as we've said before, God is bigger and better than all your sinful desires. God is bigger and better than all your sinful desires. Listen, if, if a child is attracted to biting his sister... Do we just write that child off? Well, I guess I'll be visiting you in prison. That's just the way it is. He is, he's a biter. Next thing you know, it'll be guns. No, we, we don't accept that as the identity of the child. We say that that thing which currently attracts him can be altered, can be changed, can be brought into line with the grace of God and the work that God alone can do. But our culture has come to say, no, there are certain attractions that are different. They're in a category all their own. They're unalterable, and they actually define the true nature of a person. But that's a lie. That's a lie in our culture used to convince people that they are what they simply don't have to be. That some sin cycles, they say, are too strong for God to break. That God's power can change many things about a person, but there are some things that are beyond his control. That the fatherhood of God does mark a person in many areas, but not in all areas. It's strategic that this battle is currently what's facing us in our culture and even in the church because this truth, the truth that God can change and sanctify people is the message of the gospel. That is the message of the gospel. If Jesus can't change you from what you were to what you are becoming, then your belief in him, let me just be honest with you, is in vain. If Jesus can't change you, then the hope presented in the New Testament is just a farce. If Jesus cannot change you, then promises, even like the resurrection, are untrue. Because Jesus says, I can change you into the person that you need to become. That your identity is in God, your Father in heaven. So in attacking this point, the enemy has kind of come around behind us. He's, if he'd mounted a frontal attack and said baldly, that God is a liar, we'd be incensed. And we'd mount a counterattack based on all the truths of Scripture in which we say, no, God is faithful. He comes through every time. This God is our God. He will be our God forever. And our banners would be flying. Our pennants would be streaming behind us as we march to the battle. But we're a little confused about what to do with this because he's come behind us to attack us with an ambush. He's insisting instead, the enemy, that attractions unalterably define people. And in getting us to believe that, He's getting us right where he wants us to go. It's actually the very same lie that has been perpetrated by him since the Garden of Eden because he's getting us to call God a liar. He's getting us to say that God can change people, but not me. That God can change people some, but not fundamentally, not essentially, to the very core of their Beings. And so inadvertently, in a backward sort of a way, we end up saying, oh no, God is powerful, but not all powerful. God is capable, but not all capable. God is a father, but not, I'm not quite sure how much he actually identifies with me as my father. We can't let our appetites or attractions be an excuse for sinful living. I wonder how you'll identify this week. How will you identify this week? Can I just give you two suggestions that might help you as you are working through this morass of our culture and even the confusion in your own head and the whispered lies of the enemy? Tell your father your feelings. Yeah, yep, that's it. Tell your father your feelings and be honest. Don't try to hide. Listen to what, this, what, uh, what we're told in Psalm 62, 7 and 8. The psalmist writes, On God... Rest my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Now listen, pour out your heart before him. 
whatever's in there, just pour it out. Remember your relationship to God. Who are you in relation to God? You're his child, therefore, and you're his loved child. Therefore, you can come to him with all the things that concern you, the things that embarrass you, the things that you don't tell to anyone else. This God, come and pour out your heart before him. And then, having poured out your heart before God, just believe the truth again about who you really are. You are heard by God. You're loved by God. You belong to God. You're kept by your Father. You aren't strong enough to stand against the tide, but he is. 1 John chapter 3, in verses 19 and 20, we read these words from the Apostle John. By this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. By this we know the truth and reassure our heart before him. When we're confused, when we're uncertain, when we aren't sure who we really are, when our hearts are all in a, in a confusion inside of us, John gives us instructions. He says, when our heart condemns us, when it tells you something that isn't true about who you are, please hear this. When your heart condemns you, God, says John, is greater than your heart. And he knows everything. God is greater than your heart. And he knows everything. We believe what God says, even when it cuts across the things that we presently feel. Let me say that again. We believe what God says, and we act upon it, even when our feelings run counter to that. And we say, I don't think that that's really true. But we hold the truth anyway. Remember, feelings are a terribly bad way to judge who you are. Uh, again, think of the grocery store and going hungry, right? Our feelings are a terrible way to evaluate who we really are. We are identified by our relationship to God our Father. Our, our heart might be saying inside of us, it might be condemning us by saying, you're too bad for God to love. You're too broken to be mended. You're too hurt to be healed. You're too damaged to be made whole again. But God is greater than your heart. He defines and identifies you in your feelings and not your feelings, not your past, not your attractions. Believe the truth and cling to your Father in heaven. Because we're accepted by our Father, we just aren't confused about who we are. We take what he says as the truth because it is. And the truth is that we're accepted by God. We also don't complicate. We don't complicate our approach to God, how we approach him. We've talked in the past about the fact that prayer is about aligning our desires with God's desires. That's what the idea of waiting means. We talked about it from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 31. And you might remember that the word waiting has to do at its roots with the concept of being woven together. Kind of like being uh, like a rope that has all the different parts of that rope woven into one until you can't tell thread from thread. It's just one great rope. That's what prayer is about. It's about aligning with God so that my will and God's will are one in one great rope, inextricable from each other. But, but, and I want this to be so clear, but waiting isn't just sitting back and waiting with nothing to do. We're active. And sometimes our waiting involves talking to God. And the way that we talk to him is, as we've been saying, like a child talks to his father. Now, it may seem at this moment that these two things are opposite of each other, that they can't peacefully coexist, that on the one hand, being woven together with the purposes of God, praying in alignment with the purposes of God, is contrary to the idea that we come to God as children with whatever's on our heart. But let me show you how it works. Prayer is actually the means. Prayer, as you coming as a child to your father, is the means by which you're woven together with God. Prayer is the means by which God weaves his purposes and your purposes together. Listen to Psalm 142, 1 and 2. David is writing, and he was uh, hotly pursued at the time. He was hiding in a cave, and he writes this. With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. Do you get what David's doing? He's just coming like a child. He's telling God exactly what's going on. In fact, he even uses the word in the English, complaint. I pour out my complaint before him. God, I don't like this. This is a terrible thing that's happening. 
And God doesn't reprove him for that. God receives him as his own child. David continues, he says, When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. He's talking to God, just telling him about the things that God already knows. But that doesn't stop him from coming to God as a child comes to his father. He doesn't, David doesn't say, well, I don't think I'll bend the ear of the king because he knows everything anyway. He doesn't say, I don't think I'll bother the emperor because he's the emperor and I'm supposed to figure out what he wants before I come. He just comes. He just comes. So the end of this matter is, so pray. We're praying to our Father in heaven. That's the whole idea of these first four words of the Lord's model prayer. Come and pray, pray as a child. A child just says, Daddy, this hurts. Please help me. And the father, who knows how much it hurts, holds that child close in a strong embrace and strokes his head and soothes him. David also doesn't say, I'm going to figure out the most godly way to pray, and then I'll make a formal petition to the king. He, he doesn't clear his throat and put on his best speaking voice and all the right clothes and try to smile just right. He just cries out to God because he is God's child. So come, come, come as a child who is accepted by your Father in heaven. You don't have to wonder. I wonder how he's going to do with this particular request. Just come. Just come. I can tell you how he'll receive that request. As your father who loves you. So sometimes we talk to God, but, but don't forget that talking to God involves also listening to God. So we wait in silence and set all our expectation on him. That's Psalm 62 and verse 5. For God alone, David writes, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Here David blends the talking and the listening into a wonderful conversation between the father and the child as he exhorts the peoples, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. Listen, stop, pay attention, Pour out your complaint before him. It's all one act. Do you feel that? This is all one great act. And the act, as Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6, is called praying. And it's praying to our Father in heaven who loves us and who has adopted us into his family. We Listening is the act of opening our hands to receive what God has for us. We don't pray with clenched fists. We actually want to hear what God says so that we can be woven together with him. Yes, we pour out our complaint before him. And then we listen. We listen for what he wants to do. And for you, perhaps, as in, the, in what I mentioned earlier, the request that I've had as I have poured out my complaint to God, my request to God over and over, uh, my request has been answered with a no. But you know, I'm not stopping coming. I, I'm not stopping coming. I want to know what he wants to do. I want to be woven together with his purposes and his will. So I'm thanking him that for whatever reason, he's not answered my good request yet with a yes. And I'm waiting to see what he wants to do. To be very honest, I don't know yet. I don't know. I want to know. I want to understand but in the process, I'm still coming. You know why the Father wants you to come to him in prayer? Well, it's for all the reasons we've just talked about. He wants you to come to him in prayer, to call him Father, because in fact, he loves you. We're always looking to God as somehow the one who will change things for us, and that's true. God does and can and will at the right time because he invests all of his authority on your behalf to accomplish the purposes that are the very best for you. But the reason he wants you to come to him in prayer is because he loves you. He loves you. And he wants to connect with you. Remember, he already knows your request before you ask it. 
you're not giving God new information. You don't have to complicate the matter because God is your Father, your Father who accepts you through Jesus. Just come. Just come and receive from God what only He can give to you. And what He can give to you is the absolute assurance that you are accepted by Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we can't imagine that the King of the universe, the God who made everything we can see and everything we can't see, that this God would call us sons of God and invite us through that relationship to come and build a relationship that is richer and more beautiful than anything we could ever imagine, to come and to spend time in the throne room addressing all of our needs, pouring out our complaints before you, calling upon you, and hearing your response. Oh, Father, we pray that we would come more and that we would come less complicatedly and that we would come believing that you are the one who truly identifies us, that our relationship to the Father is the thing that really matters, the thing that's most fundamental, the thing that's most authentic about who we really are. We come to you, our Father in heaven, and ask that you would work this work in us by your Spirit, for Jesus' sake. Amen.